August 12th. It's in the email. Uh, if your last name is A to something, bring this, whatever. So we're not really doing signups. Just look at the email with the uh, breakdowns there. So, hey, let's get into the word of Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 56. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many, uh, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. <laughs> and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Imagine that. Wow. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Short passage, but a lot in this. So let me pray and uh, we'll keep walking through this. Lord, thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, in just such few verses, there's such just amazing events happening here. And Lord, I pray that as we slow down to look at this, that we would take time and to ponder, to imagine what it must have been like. So Lord, I pray that because of this, that we would, we would learn, that we would pay attention, that we would stop and consider, that we would just, like the centurion, be filled with awe at who you are and what you did. Don't let the familiarity of these events, Lord, uh, uh, just help, just make us uh, almost numb to them. But Lord, help these, these very events that we're looking at just make the impact on our hearts that you would have them. Lord, thank you for what you did for us on that cross, on Golgotha, on Calvary, some 2,000 years ago. With that, with that amazing event, sad, dark, in one sense, but yet the greatest victory of all time. God, I thank you that we have hope in you, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would impress this on our hearts, like you did, that, like it did to that first generation of Christians who couldn't contain their awe, their joy, their worship of you. And, and, and because of that, the church spread your gospel. And Lord, we want that. We want that desperately. So Lord, thank you for what we have ahead of us. Open our eyes Open our ears. Lord, make us have hearts that are soft and receptive to know your word and to love you more and to walk in your ways more clearly, Lord. So we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Before I talk about this, uh, what's going on here, uh, what you, you guys know that I love to surf and I love, I love big waves. And so uh, whenever there's a big swell, I like going down to, to the ocean, not to surf in it, but to see it. And so a few years ago, I was down at Ventura, and I took a picture. I believe it's there. And again, it's not a very clear one. I had my iPhone, and it was, a, you know, waves were just brushing the bottom of the pier, and they're out there, guys out there surfing, and they're nuts. Um, but I love doing that. But, but I also love watching big waves uh, online when there's surf contests. And so there's a place called Nazaré in Portugal that has waves up to 100 feet. And there's guys that surf it. You can go to the next one. This is at the point, the cliff looking down at it. Looking down. The waves feel like you can go to the next slide. So that's, there's a guy 
you know, he has to, you have to be towed into these waves. It's just crazy to see the power of these waves. There's also a place called Chopu, that where the wave, it, it comes from deep water, it hits a reef, and it goes almost square, and the lip is so thick. I have a few pictures. I don't know if you can just get the, the grasp, the magnitude of the power of these waves. You can go to the next slide, too. Next slide. So then also... That, and it's not just waves I like, but we, we've been to Yosemite. How have you been to Yosemite before? I mean, my first time there, I was just struck with just the beauty of the place, the grandeur of the place. You can go to the next slide on that one, too. So, so I love how nature makes me, you know, slow down a little bit and just, it reminds me of how small I am. And that's a good thing, isn't it? You know, because if we're just going through the daily things, we're, we're always taking care of self. And, but when there's momentous events... Big events, big nature, it helps me slow down and think a little bit. I've, I've, I've experienced, like many of you, I've experienced uh, personally some big events. I was, um, Renee and I, when we were first married, we were living in Whittier when the, the, you know, this, the Northridge earthquake hit, and that was pretty scary. When I was a little bit younger, a few years before, I was living in Cupertino when the, the uh, uh, was the earthquake that hit during the World Series. So I was about 30 miles from the epicenter there. That was quite the shaker too. But each one of those made me just think and realize, whoa, the Camarillo Springs fire that happened just a few years ago, it got within a block of our house. We we're helping people evacuate. I mean, I've seen you know, other momentous events, 2001, the Twin Towers, watching that. That was kind of a history-altering one in, in a sense. But each one of these... Are, are, are events or, or things that make you just stop. And that's good. That's good for us. This passage that we're looking at today fits in that category, but to obviously to a much larger degree to make you just go, whoa, wow, to stop, to consider. And here's the deal. God is using not just the preaching of Jesus and his miracles at this point as he's on the cross and breathes his last creation stops to say something God uses creation to say pay attention pay attention the first indication was while Jesus was on the cross something happened that everyone had to notice whether you were right there in front of the cross or not it was darkness filled the land for three hours we talked about that last week it's funny that darkness was actually giving a commentary about what was happening on the cross because darkness was associated with the judgment of God. And that's when Jesus was on the cross taking on our sin, being treated as if he had committed every sin. He wasn't a sinner, but God was treating him as our replacement, as our substitute, as the sacrifice, his blood. He was suffering. His blood was that which paid what we were supposed to pay. So darkness was saying something about it. But Jesus' cry tells us too, doesn't it? The hour of darkness. He had said it was the power of darkness before it all started. And there when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on him. We talked about that last week. Just to think about how that could happen is, is mind-numbing. It's, it's overwhelming. But so darkness, so we had creation telling us, pay attention. And now we have more to consider. So let's continue to walk through what's been going on here in this passage and to look at the crucifixion of the king. 
looking at these events so that we would, we would stop and consider because it's not just, he could have just said, yeah, creation said, hey, pay attention, but he gives us some details, and I think it's important that we would walk through that. So looking at verse uh, 51, the first, the first thing that says, it, it, it talks about the curtain, all right, and you can see I had fun with the outline, all C's, I know, but here we go. So, and behold, the curtain of the temple, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And actually, before we start looking at the significance of the veil to, to remind us of what's happening here, what was the first thing? I, I mentioned this last week. What was the first of Jesus' seven sayings while he was on the cross, if you remember that or if you know? The first thing he did when he was on the cross, he looked down and he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Dresses him as, as Father. He makes a few more statements, but then towards the end, he says, my God. Do you remember what I said about that last week? He went from Father, which if you look at over a hundred times in the, during Jesus' life we have, that we have recorded in his prayers or talking about it, he calls God his Father, which for a Jew was very unusual. Matter of fact, they tried to stone him several times because he called God his father, and the Jews recognized that, saying, you make yourself out to be God when you call him your father. But then here, in the middle of what's going on, he calls him my God. Why is that? Because God had to treat him as sin. And he had to turn his back, and it was a distant relationship. For the first time in eternity... In all of eternal history, there was a break between God the Father and God the Son. That's mind-boggling. And it was temporary. And it was where God the Father as judge, the holy judge, the holy one who cannot be in the presence of sin, took and, and laid the burden, the debt of all the sin on Jesus. Jesus the Son who had come in the flesh. Remember, he was... God the Son, and He came in the flesh. Why did He have to come in the flesh? So He could represent man. Animals could never represent us. The sacrifices that they had going on in the temple, they had to do it all the time, every year. They were never done. But now Jesus, because He came as a man and lived a perfect life, God treated Him, laid the sin on Him, and Jesus took it willingly. So this, the, the visual that, I, the reason I bring this up is the visual you're supposed to, to keep in mind. Remember, we have to think like what when we look at Scripture? Like Jews. This is temple sacrificial imagery. All right? So when he turned his back, he was, he was because of the, the, the burden was being laid on him. And Jesus was being treated. He's being forsaken by God, cursed by God because he was on a tree, Deuteronomy. He took on our curse. And then when the darkness was all over, he, he said, it is finished. Father, notice Father, it changes back to good again. Father, what, what does he say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. What he's saying is basically he's in charge of his own timing, of his own death. Isn't that amazing to see how that happens? So we're thinking, we're also again, we're thinking sacrificial imagery and that's why when we see the first thing that happens right away when he breathed his laugh, gives his life over, dies, is that the temple of the curtain, or the curtain of the temple, was torn in two, but it was torn in a specific way. How? 
top to bottom. Okay, so let's look at some, some pictures here of what we're, well, again, the Temple Mount, he was crucified just outside the city walls, probably about here, less than, less than 400 yards from that temple, just outside the city walls. Okay, and remember we talked about he was sacrificed outside the gates, just like Leviticus says, one of the sacrifices was done outside the camp. Okay, so he's, he's outside the temple, all right? And in the temple, we have to understand that there's specific compartments. You've got the, the holy place and the holy of holies, but the dividing was this important curtain, all right? This, this amazing, it had designs on it. It was a big, it was 30 feet wide by 60 feet tall. So it's not like some little sunshade we have over there. Okay, it was thick, it was ornate, specifically, I had specific designs. But, they, but what would happen is that only once per year could someone go from the holy place beyond the curtain, beyond the veil, to the holy of holies. Only one person could one time per year. Who was that? The high priest, okay? And he would take the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and he would walk through, but his garments, and we've, we looked at this several years ago when we looked at the book of Hebrews, is that he would have, he has these specific garments, but he also has some, some rocks on him. And it was the, each one of the rocks, there was 12 of them, had the names of Israel, the tribes of Israel on them. So he would go before God to the holy, play, the holy of holies, bringing the blood to throw on the altar to represent Israel. He was the representative to go in bearing the sins and the sacrifice for the sins to put on the altar, to sprinkle on it, and he couldn't stay in there long. He couldn't sit down and hang out. He was supposed to do it quickly and get out. Because what would happen is then the the glory of God in a cloud called the Shekinah glory would descend, and this little altar, what was it called? The Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Now, at Jesus' time, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there, so they had some kind of other altar, all right? But here's the deal is that the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant had a seat on it. What was it called? The mercy seat. Why mercy? Well, inside the Ark were the Ten Commandments. There's other, a couple other things. But inside those were the Ten Commandments that were representative of the holy law of God. When you sin, what do you break? The holy law of God. So this is, you're supposed to think pictorially. You're supposed to think image. Imagine what's going on here. So you've got the, the box with the, with the broken commandments inside, because that's what we do when we sin. And then God would descend, the holy God. But what is covering, what was just sprinkled on the seat? The blood. So the blood acted as the covering over the broken commandments. That's, that's the whole point of the symbolism. So the high priest in doing that, he's bringing the sacrifice so that God could descend. And by the way, they called the Ark of the Covenant, they called it the throne of God because there was two angels that were sculpted that had their wings touching and, and so it, was like, it looked like a throne. So when you think about Isaiah 6, when Isaiah said, I was in the temple and I saw God seated on his throne, he's in the temple and who's he seeing? Because he couldn't look on God the Father because if you did, you died. Who did he see on that throne? The pre-incarnate Christ. Isn't that Cool. So that's all this stuff is coming to mind if you're a Jew hearing this. Only one person could go. And he had, he had to go through his own, this high priest, before he could even go there, he had to do all this stuff to make sure he was ceremonially clean. And he could only go in real quickly. There's no place to sit in there except for the throne, and that was only for God. Sprinkle that blood on and get out. 
The veil was there to separate because God was so other. That's what holiness means. Totally other and distinct. And yet, something happened here. Something that the Jews, if you were a Jew during this period, you would not miss. You would go, what? And that's exactly the point. That curtain prohibited access to God, and yet when Jesus died, God said something's changed. And Him ripping it from top to bottom. This is 60 feet tall and really thick, several layers. Can you imagine what would have happened? Go to the next seat. This, I love this picture. I know I like pictures, but seeing, having, because there's always priests in the holy place. They're supposed to keep doing the incense and the showbread and all this. To have that happen, because it was also, when Jesus died, it was at 3 p.m. And I talked about that last week. What was the significance of that time of the day on the Passover? The lamb was sacrificed. This is an important time. Go rip! Now, I always wonder, how did Matthew know that? I, there's a, it says in Acts that there's a bunch of Pharisees and priests who had become Christians. Maybe he, he talked to one of them who saw it happen. No doubt the word got out when it did happen, but pretty cool, huh? Amazing. This was God's work saying something. And so I want to give you God's commentary out of the book of Hebrews. Okay, this is what God says about this. First of all, the old economy, meaning before Jesus came, how did you have a relationship with God? Where did you worship? Only at the temple. And, and could you just come to the temple, do whatever you wanted to do? It was like a good tourist destination. No. You had to bring your sacrifice. And it wasn't just Passover. They, came, they, had, they had seven feasts during the year, three major ones. And they always had the daily sacrifice. It was always happening there. So it was one place, and it's called, I'm calling it the old economy. The way that you interacted with God is being done away with. And the new one, the new covenant, is being inaugurated by what Jesus has done here. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that during the Passover. At the Last Supper, he says, this, co- this blood is the, the blood of the new covenant. It's in my blood. He was the one who was initiating this new covenant that Ezekiel talked about, that Jeremiah talked about, that all the Jews longed for to come because it was going to change things. And that's what was happening here. Hebrews 9, 11 through through 12, and then 24 through 28. You can read the whole chapter. That's why in the email I said you should read the whole chapter. But just listen to this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, oh, who was allowed to go in the Holy Holy of Holies once per year? the high priest, but this is a different high priest. You'll have to look back at our sermons back then. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus, because of, therefore, securing an eternal redemption. So how many more sacrifices need to be done? Zero. Zero. For Christ has entered, what? The holy place. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And what is his job now? To be our 
advocate, defense lawyer, our intercessor, it says. That's his job. That's what he's doing right now. He's not dying for sins anymore. That's already done. He lives, says, to intercede for us day after day. You've got a defense lawyer working for you. Who wins? He always does. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Wow. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen? He's coming back. So first of all, the old economy is done away with. There's a new covenant. The second thing, we can now have confident access. Who could go once per year? Only the high priest, and he went with fear and trembling. They said bells on his, uh, on his garments just to make sure they knew he was still pl- you know, walking around because if the high priest were to stop walking around for too long, you know what they probably thought? Maybe he was dead. He had to go in there in fear and trembling, but check out what this says here. Hebrews 10, 19-22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence... To enter the holy places, why? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. When his body died that he offered up, it was broken for us. That gained us access to God. Not just the high priest. We don't have to have a priest. I don't go before you to God as your representative because you can't. We all do. We are a kingdom of priests, Peter says. And since we have a great high priest over the throne of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you get the imagery? That's what's happening when Jesus cried, it was finished. The sacrifice, he, that tearing of the temple, that changed everything. And now Christ, the great high priest, is our access to God, to his grace, to his mercy, to his help. And we can boldly come. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. I keep bringing this one up. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with, what does it say up there? Confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. What's the throne of grace? The Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest could go see it before. Now who can? I'm looking at you. If you're a Christian, you can. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Wow. That's what we get in Christ Jesus. So when the temple curtain, the veil was ripped top to bottom, that's what it meant. Again, to the Jews, your jaw would hit the floor. We don't have a temple in front of us. We didn't see it happen. We're, we're just not used to that. We, we've been in the new covenant for so long. 
But you guys understand, remember, when we're reading Scripture, we have to stop and consider. These are momentous events. These are momentous events. This is bigger than any earthquake. This is what's happening. History, eternal history has changed. And that's just the first event. So we see creation. It says, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So there's darkness over all the land and now a huge earthquake. And it, we don't know if it was just in, in Jerusalem or if it was all of Israel over the whole world. We don't know. But it, it's definitely a huge earthquake. But it, and one thing you need to know, Jerusalem is on a, uh, on a fault line, much like we are here in, in Southern California. But it, here's the deal. It was a supernatural earthquake because when did it happen? Right when Jesus said, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit. It wasn't just some like, because they say, oh, the darkness over the land. There's some liberal scholars who say, oh, it was during an eclipse during this year. No, it was the middle of the day when it happened. It happened for just three hours, but it was total darkness. It wasn't a slow fade to black and a slowly getting light again. It was boom black to boom light again. Supernatural earthquake. And again, earthquakes in Scripture are often associated with the arrival of the mighty God when he shows up on the scene. Psalm 18, 6 through 8. In my distress, uh, David writes, I call upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. When God shows up, the earth says, oh, the king is here. When Moses was getting the, the Ten Commandments, when he was meeting with God, it says that the whole mountain was shaking. There was thunder. There was lightning. When God shows up, you know it. There's no mistaking. But also when he comes, it says earthquakes are associated with his judgment, with the wrath of God. For instance, in Isaiah 5.25, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuge in the midst of the streets. Oh, wow. So it's said that there's an earthquake. And I thought this was interesting, and this is, where I, this is my own personal opinion, but I found some biblical backing for this. It says the rocks split apart. Now, when there's earthquakes, rocks generally tumble, and that's what they did. But he, I thought it was interesting. He said, and the rocks split apart. And when I think about rocks, because remember, I've brought this up many times. In Matthew, there's a constant theme about Jesus being the next one, the, the, the one who's like Moses. Because remember, Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, hey, you need to pay attention because in the future, there's going to be the one called the prophet who's going to come. So this, in the, Messian, or the Jewish expectation of the Messiah, he was supposed to be like Moses. And if you see in the book of Matthew, I've stopped and talked about this several times, Jesus reenacted the Exodus in many ways. The Sermon on the Mount. When he sat down to teach on the sermon side, the Jewish mind... That's just like when Moses was on the mountain getting the word of God. He was also meeting with God at different places on mountains. And he was teaching. Moses, what did he bring? Was he just the leader of Israel? Well, yeah, he was, but it wasn't just that. Because what did he get from God that he gave to the people? Torah, the law. 
He wrote the first five books. He was revered by that. That's why the Messiah, when he came, had to show that he knew the Old Testament. Well, the law, for the Torah. And that's what Jesus kept doing to show. And they were all, whenever the people heard him teach, what was their reaction? They were amazed. They had never heard someone teach like this. He was so utterly different from the scribes and the Pharisees. He did these miracles. Well, who else did miracles? Well, Moses did. But Jesus did far more. Jesus is, in, again, the, the Jews of that time had an expectation that God was going to show up, that the Messiah was going to show up to lead, in their mind, what was called the second exodus. So when Jesus is doing this, he's reenacting. Now, that sounds, that sounds kind of staged, but it wasn't. He, everything he did said, I am that prophet. So, this is why this is why it stood out to me about the rocks were split apart. When the Jews were in the wilderness, at some point, because it's like the desert out there, because it is a desert, very rocky, worse than here in many ways, the Sinai, you have a lack of water. At one point, the Jews needed water. So how did God provide that water? There's two instances, but the first one, the good one, is that Moses hit the rock, and, and the rock what? Split apart, and water flowed out of it. A matter of fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.4 says that was Jesus. He is the rock from which the water, that's what he likened it to. 1 Corinthians 10.4, look it up. So I just thought it was interesting. In the Exodus, there was an instance where a rock provided water. What did Jesus call himself when he was talking to the woman at the well? He says, I'm the living water. Who drinks from me will never thirst again. I just thought that was interesting. That in here, Matthew says, and the rocks are split apart. Why don't you just, that's what happens when earthquakes happen, a big one. Just thought that was interesting. But that was a connection, I think, into Exodus to keep reminding us that Jesus is the prophet, the one who's changing everything. He's the one that will give us life. And matter of fact, he's going to show up to Jerusalem, tells us in Zechariah 14.4. He's going to show up when he comes again, and what's going to happen to the rocks? It says the rocks, it's, it's, it's that it's gonna, the Mount of Olives is going to split apart. And there's going to be a river flowing from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. Did you know that? That's what happens in Zechariah 14.4. So there's going to be rocks splitting again when he shows up. I just thought that was interesting. When Jesus shows up or does something, the, word, the earth rocks and the rocks split. But there's more. Verse 52 and 53, the tombs were opened, and that generally happens when the rocks split, but the tombs were also opened, but there's something special about this. It says the the many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Zombie apocalypse? No. (laughs) And coming out of the tombs, when does it say they came out of the tombs? After his resurrection. So when Jesus died, it was Friday afternoon at 3 But they didn't come out until Jesus had been raised from the dead. That was Sunday morning, early, early. Isn't that interesting? What did they do in the meantime? I don't know. Who were they? Which saints? We don't know. Was it a lie? You know, was it some of the old prophets? I don't know. Well, it says that they didn't show up into, now they went into Jerusalem, into the city, and they appeared to many. Well, what did they say? I don't know, but what do you think they said? Hey! Jesus, the Son of God, died for your sins, and He rose today. 
They, why did they wait, by the way, until uh, Jesus' resurrection? Well, it says in the New Testament, because he's the firstborn over, uh, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. So he's the first one. They were just following their leader. Isn't that cool? Imagine this. Dead Aunt May. She's been dead for 50 years, Christian. Well, she wasn't called, they weren't called Christians because you couldn't be called a Christian then. Why? Because she died before Jesus, so, but she was known as a God follower. A, she was called a saint. And so she's raised from the dead, shows up, you see her, and you're like, what? You guys, think about this. We're supposed to say, what? It's that kind of incident. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, what happened to them afterwards? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say. It just tells us what happened. Their, their, their Savior's death was so significant that the earth had to spew them out, that the tombs couldn't hold them. Why? Because the tomb couldn't hold Jesus, the risen Son of God. And we'll get to that. There's more great stuff coming. But we're supposed to say, wow, Christ's death is telling us that he gained the victory. Death is not the end of the story. I keep thinking of Dick. I will see him again. You will see him again. It's not the end of the story. Isn't that cool? As we get older, it makes it impacts me more and more. We just had a friend who just had a heart attack. He's doing fine. But a close friend is like, wow, he's, in, he's, he's my age. It just makes you stop and think. And you read this, and it's not the end of the story. There's hope, folks. His death should make us stop. Of course, in the teaching about what it means in Isaiah and all that, but here, creation. There's events that happened on that very moment that we need to stop and pay attention to. Each of these momentous, earth-shaking, mind-boggling events has to wake up, wake us up. Indeed, it did. Because look at what happened in verse 54, the centurion. When the centurion and those were, who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Matter of fact, it was also said that, that he said, certainly this man was innocent. We know that in Luke. He recognized what was going on, that it was unjust, and this man was so significant. We don't know if he meant a son of God, like he was a demigod. We don't know what, you know, his worldview, they had, uh, 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 what he called a worldview, of pantheon of gods, of demigods. We don't know if he meant that, or if he recognized, oh my goodness, this is the son of God. We don't know what his view is. But isn't it funny that a Gentile, a hated Gentile, a Roman centurion, who, as far as we know, had no contact with the Torah, the Scriptures, was able to recognize and declare. He's the first one to say something about the identity of Jesus after his death. And who else were around that very cross but mocking and, and insulting and even blaspheming Jesus? Who were those? The religious leaders. The contrast when a centurion says this, you're supposed to say, what? The Pharisees, 
The Sadducees, the religious leaders, were on the other end of the spectrum. And here's a pagan who says something that's absolutely true about Jesus. The events made him wake up and say, wow, may it do the same to us. He recognizes that something abnormal has just happened. And it says actually in in Luke as well that it says that others who, who left after his death were beating their breasts in grief. They walked away in sorrow. I don't know if it's because they recognize who he is and that what they had just done was wrong, but there was just a response. Some people did notice. And here's the deal. This is starting to give us a taste for what's about to happen at the end of chapter 28. This is a Gentile seeing Jesus and saying, wow. This is to give us a taste that the gospel is not just meant for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because it said, Jesus, when during his ministry, he says, I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We've come to the Jews first, because they need to see. They need to understand correctly. But this is starting to give us a taste that the gospel is not to be contained in Israel. See, back in the day before Jesus, if you wanted to know the true God of the universe, you had to come and worship at Jerusalem. It was come but now in the gospel, the new covenant, we'll see it's go. Go and tell. Come and see. Go and tell. It's a, there's a change happening here. This is the taste of it. The Gentiles are being, being given the opportunity to see. The kingdom of God is here. We see a pagan centurion who sees the truth at least to some degree and declares the innocence of Christ and his identity, but there's others. It's included here in verse 55 and 56, and I call them the committed. Notice what it says here. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. That means they had been with him for how long? Three years. So we didn't just have 12 disciples who were with Jesus for three years. We also had women. It says, ministering to who? To Jesus. They're there. We find out they actually help uh, support financially. Kind of cool. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. But here's the deal. Women are here highlighted as more faithful than who? The 12 disciples. Now, did those 12 disciples lose their right to lead? No. Jesus restored them. But, the, but notice... Again, if you are trying to write a religious book with a new religion back in that day or even today, you would never highlight the weaknesses of your supposed leaders. And yet, what do we see all throughout the Gospels about the disciples? They're weak, weak men. But who did God choose to use those weak, weak men? This also... Back in the day, you would not use women as the ones to hold up as your example of godliness and faithfulness in contrast to the men. Did you know that? In a court of law, a woman's testimony was not considered valid as a man's was. And yet, at his death, who are the faithful ones to testify to the significance of Jesus? These women. Their lives were shaken before there was any earthquake. Isn't that cool? Don't miss that. They were the committed And who are the first witnesses we'll see to the resurrection? Women. Isn't that cool? Me too? No. God's always said women are created in whose image? His image. 
full of value, equal worth. Isn't that amazing? You can't miss this. Why would he include this? Well, he's trying to make a point. They were more faithful than the 12 disciples. We do know that one disciple was present. Who was that? We don't know from Matthew. We know from the Gospel of John. John was there, and Jesus says, hey, John... Mary, my mom, I'm the, I'm the firstborn. He doesn't say all this, but this is what he meant. He said, hey, John, you've got to take care of her. The rest of my brothers and sisters, they don't believe in me. You do. You take care of her. Hey, Mary, you gotta, this is the guy who's going to take care of you. He did a transact. He's being a faithful son. So we know John was there, but in a very non-interactive role. But, he was, but we see these women were there, fearless. Again, we have different, if you look at the different Gospels, and I have a chart up here, you can see that in, in different passages, we're not exactly sure who all of them were, but just so you know, that's there. But here's the point you don't, can't miss. They were with him all along, even financially supporting this traveling rabbi. They were with him to the end of his earthly life in this passage. They were the first on the scene at his tomb for the resurrection. Again, they didn't expect him to rise from the dead, but they were there to honor him. They were the first ones to show up. They didn't care if there were soldiers there. Where were the disciples that morning? Hiding. They were committed to the Lord Jesus Christ to the end, though the forces of darkness were aligned against their Lord, yet they followed him. And also, they do serve as a link to what's coming up here. But here's the deal, and I said already, but their lives were shaken before there was an earthquake. They were committed. And they are to stand as an example to us. We got the religious leaders who totally missed the point. They were enemies of Jesus. And yet we have a centurion saying, wow, this is the Son of God. We have the tombs saying, we can't hold him. We have women who are committed through thick and thin to him. So we are supposed to stop and listen. Stop and pay attention. In this short little passage, we can't miss the point. Don't just walk through, oh, I can't wait for the resurrection. The resurrection's really cool, but there's more to come. But we can't miss what has happened here. This is no mere death. The earth shook. The graves couldn't hold him. God couldn't hold back. He gave this testimony about his son and what Jesus had just accomplished. History has changed. Do you guys understand that? All of history... This is the fulcrum, the dividing point of all of history. This is the one thing in in eternity that's never happened before, and it'll never happen again when God forsook Christ, when Christ came as a man and took on our sins. But it changes everything, everything. We have access to the Lord Jesus. We We can go to God now. You have access some people talking to me over the years, oh yeah, I've just done so many sins. Could you pray for me? I said, I'll pray for you, but you can talk to God too. Oh, I'm a new Christian. I'm saying, that's great, but you know what? As soon as you're a Christian, here's some things that are true about you. You are indwelt totally by the Holy Spirit. And not just God the Holy Spirit, but also it says that Jesus said that, hey, I and the Father will make our home in you too. When you abide in us, we'll abide in you. You've got the Trinity who lives inside you. Did you know that? Everyone do this, because now you know that. The minute you become a Christian, not when you've attained a certain number of degrees, that's true about you. How can you approach Jesus? Through prayer. How do you pray? Talk to Him. Well, how do, you, how do I just talk to Him? Well, how do you talk to someone you love? Talk to Him that way. 
Oh, but I've sinned so many times and I've just said, yeah, but what did Jesus say on the cross at the very end? It is, what was he talking about? Oh, my time's up. I've done my three hours, Lord. It's, it's time. Is that what he meant? No, his sacrifice, his mission. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to die as a ransom for many. He came to take on the sins, all the sins of all those who would ever believe in him. All the sins, when you became a Christian, his death applied to you for all the sins you had ever done and ever, all the sins you are doing and ever this, all the sins you would ever do. Isn't that cool? That's what Jesus did. That's why the cross is such an important symbol for us to understand and to embrace and to say, thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. So, listen, see, learn all that's in here in the Gospels and then follow this Savior, this Lord Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? Repent of your sins. And that's not just, oh, I'm sinning. It's, I, I want to stop sinning. I want to follow him. It's an active thing. And trust in him. And for Christians, man, that's, this is such a challenging passage for me. What would I have done if they had come to take my rabbi, my master, my Lord? Would I fall, run away? Or would I would be like one of these women who are fearless, who, who followed? That, should, that challenges me. It should you. Always asking, how would I have responded? right? And then preparing yourself, Lord, I want to stand. And by the way, you're not supposed to do that individually. It says we're supposed to stand corporately together, helping each other, all right? Hey, let me pray, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll finish this up. But Lord, thank you for this, this amazing passage. Creation can't even contain itself when, when what you did on that, on that cross. You, the creator, says you were there at creation, Lord Jesus, so, so creation itself couldn't contain it, what, it, what had to happen. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs spit out the dead, and saints were able to come alive and, and, and appear to many. It's just such an amazing thing. And then the, the veil, the curtain being torn top to bottom. Lord, I, I pray that you would put in us that, that same awe, of you that that the centurion himself felt and lord that we would uh boy just stop and consider and ponder this meditate on this passage and and lord ask ourselves how are we how are we um just worshiping you day to day do our lives look like we believe that there's a resurrected savior a resurrected lord who's coming again one day do we even have that hope Can people tell we have that hope? And Lord, I pray that would be true. More and more, I pray that you would work in this church family, Lord, to to create a greater holiness in us and a greater unity together, standing together. And Lord, a, a greater witness. Lord, may we shine brightly for you. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for your love and your mercy that you show to us every day. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.